Exodus 20, verses 3 through 17. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them to serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not, excuse me, the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. This is the word of the Lord. Man, that's a hard passage to hear, huh? <laughs> um, we hear the law read over us and... Um, if you feel any sense of the weight of it, then you've heard it correctly. Um, so as we come to this heavy passage uh, and, and the, 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 sober, the sobering nature of it, um, let's pray before we do that. We need the Lord's help um, in coming to it. Jesus, uh, we, do, um, we place ourselves now beneath your word. Uh, we would ask that you would cause it to uh, do what only your word can do and that is um, lead us to green pastures. And as uh, silly, hungry sheep uh, this morning, we want to feast in such a way uh, that we leave here not hungry anymore. And we need that, and only you through your word can do that for us. Um, so even if we don't feel any different when we leave here, would you help us uh, to trust in our souls um, to believe in what truly nourishes us, uh, we pray. Do that through your word. Um, pull back the curtains, Holy Spirit, and uh, show us Jesus. We are sin sick, we are tired, uh, we're, um, we're weary from a week of the chaos that we've created with our own hands and mouths and hearts, and so um, come bring order and beauty from the chaos that we've made, we pray. We pray now also for the one who you've called to teach your word this morning. You forgive him his sins, for they are many. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are uh, finishing up a series on the book of Exodus. Next week will be our last uh, sermon in the book of Exodus. And as a very brief overview of the last three months of sermons, um, basically everything I've said in the last three months can be boiled down to just a couple sentences. Uh, and we have, we have been in Egypt as slaves, the people of God, and then we watched God hear their cry and come down to rescue them and lead them out of slavery that they had been enslaved in for 400 years. And he takes them out through the, the, the 10 plagues, and then he gets them to the Red Sea, and he parts the Red Sea, and then he collapses the Red Sea on their enemy's army, Pharaoh's army, and so God has set them free. 
He, he's purchased them, he's redeemed them, he's rescued them, he's labored for them. And then after they cross the Red Sea, they're now in their wilderness on their journey to the promised land, but they make this, this pit stop, this year-long pit stop at Mount Sinai. That's, that's where we are, is at the infamous Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. And they will spend the rest of the book of Exodus at Mount Sinai. They will receive the law from the Lord at Mount Sinai for the next year. All kinds of laws, and it will be given to them through Moses as he goes up and down the mountain. And so this law that we looked at last week, we started kind of the intro to the law of God last week, and this is kind of part two, follow-up to that. But last week we saw that what the Bible says, and it says it in our passage from last week, Exodus chapter 19, it is about to give the law to the people, and it comes with a major stipulation. If, Israel, if, people of God, you will obey, you will be blessed. And if you disobey, you will be cursed. This is a law. This is a covenant document. And there are blessings with obedience and curses with disobedience. And so the people think they have what it takes to obey the law. But what we find out much later in Scripture is, is that they didn't understand what the law was actually given for. They, they were almost a test subject for us to learn from that their confidence was high that they could achieve the righteous requirements of the law. But what we know now, what the New Testament tells us, the New Testament gives us some, some glasses to put on to look back at the law in the Old Testament. It's what we looked at last week. It's what Roy called us to worship with this morning. It's that the law originally was meant to crush you. The law was meant to expose your nakedness. It was meant to show you you're not a righteous person because here's what it means to be a righteous person. And if you will look into the law, you'll see it as a mirror and the mirror will show you all of your imperfections. It will show you where you do covet. It will show you where you do lust. It will show you where you don't worship God. It will show you all the ways that you don't live up to its requirements. Romans says it very clearly. The law was given to increase your trespass. That's brutal, that the law given at Sinai was meant so that anyone who, come, who came to it would realize, I now have more sins than I realized. That's the first use of the law, but it doesn't leave us there. We saw it last week. The law uncovers us. It uncovers our nakedness and says, you're not righteous, and then it leads us to Jesus who was righteous for us. It leads us to our perfect law keeper, Jesus, who obeyed the law for us so that in what theologians would call the great exchange or the double imputation, all of the covenant curses fell on Jesus that should have fallen on us, and now all of the covenant blessings fall on us when Jesus died for that sake. The law leads us to our Christ law-obeying keeper. Christ completed and upheld the law for us, so now we are free and redeemed. Throw the call to worship back up there real quick if you can, Leah. I wanna, I'm going to reread Galatians 2 that Roy led the service with. It says this, Starting in verse 16, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. <laughs> Paul's a little repetitive there, a little OCD, like, are you getting this, reader? <laughs> no one can be justified by keeping the law because the law was meant to convince you you can't justify yourself. If you could keep the Ten Commandments perfectly in the moral code of God, you wouldn't need Jesus. That's what he goes on to say in Galatians 2, 21. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. But Christ didn't die for nothing. Christ died to give you a righteousness that you couldn't keep for yourself. 
The law was given to increase the trespass initially and then lead us to Jesus. The law was meant to expose our sinfulness. And if you've been in church for a while, that can sound like the peanuts teacher, the wah, 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 wah. But if we miss this, it, it, it is the first domino that will topple over and it will ruin everything. This is, the God, this is what it means to be a Christian. That Jesus obeyed the law for you perfectly and because of that, you and I that belong to Jesus are counted free so much so that we are not bound by the law's demands anymore because Jesus obeyed all of the law's demands for me. You are free. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free, Paul will say in Galatians chapter five. Romans eight, there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Even if you deserve condemnation, Jesus took all that away from you. We just sang it in the, in the song, I Boast No More. That song was sang at my wedding because my wife has a boasting problem. No, I'm kidding. But a song was sung at my wedding it's nostalgic every time I hear it, but faith can answer thy demands by pleading what my Lord has done. Faith pleads Jesus' merits, not mine. And I come and I'm accepted before a holy God because of Jesus' righteousness on my behalf. Faith can answer all of thy law's demands because I plead not my merits, but Christ's merits for me. And now we get treated as children of God as if we have obeyed the whole law. That's how God will look at you and treat you now. Because Jesus kept the law for you, you will get all the covenant blessings that come with a perfect law keeper. So here's the question. That was the summary of last week. That is who we are now in, in relationship to the law. So now if we're free, if we're a redeemed people, if we get treated by a holy judge, God the Father, if we get treated by him as if we had kept the whole law, if our standing before God is righteous now because of Jesus, the, here's part two. Here's the, here's the question we're going to dive into today. What do we do with the law? If you're not a believer in this room, which I know there's some of you that aren't, just based on numbers in this city, if you're not a believer, then you need to go back and listen to last week's sermon. <laughs> but for those of us that do belong to Jesus, this, this sermon's gonna be more geared towards you. I hope if you're not a Christian, you hear the call today and you're enticed by it. But this, this is, if you have been justified by faith in Jesus, what is our new relationship to the law that Rachel just read for us? How do we approach God's moral commands and God's moral law? How should we think about it? How should we approach it? And here's the simple answer. I'm gonna give a really simple answer and then I'm gonna talk about it for about 30 minutes. Uh, here's the simple sentence, one, one line answer. Is that the law, instead of crushing me, now becomes a guide to beauty. The law, instead of crushing me, becomes a guide to beauty. If the law isn't my justifier, because we just read in Galatians chapter two, no one can be justified by keeping works of the law because no one can do it perfectly. You can only be justified by faith in Christ. So if the law isn't my justifier, guess what my relationship now is to the law? I'm free now to come back to the law and have it guide me into becoming a beautiful person. As one who has been made beautiful by Jesus, as one who has been set free by Jesus, the law is now my guide for how to walk in and flesh out that newfound beauty and that newfound freedom. So what was just read for us is the, is the central law code for uh, the people of God, the Ten Commandments. It's called the Decalogue, the Ten Words it's been called. And this is the moral standard for God's people, New and Old Testaments. Even though Jesus kept the law, this is the standard of God's moral commands. And when this law is adhered to and obeyed, it is beautiful. And God is committed to making you beautiful. Hebrews chapter 10, 
He has perfected for all time by one sacrifice those who are being made perfect. You could substitute beauty in there for perfect. Those who he has made beautiful once and for all time, he is committed to making beautiful. He is so committed to making you beautiful, not into justifying you over and over again. He's already done that with Jesus. He's committed to making you beautiful, and these Ten Commandments is our guide into that. And so the way we're going to look at the Decalogue today, these ten words, is we're going to look at them as a whole. Because I thought about preaching ten sermons on each of the uh, commandments, but we're not going to do that. We're going to take it as a whole. And if we remember from last week, we, just, we hinted at this idea that the commandments come to us in the you shall not format. You shall not do this, you shall not do this, you shall not do this. This restrictive law, you shall not do these things. But what we talked about last week is that the, the ancient Hebrew culture would have understood laws and, and the way that they were given, especially divine laws, as not just limited to the you shall nots. They would have come with an implied and an inherent you shall. The opposite was also true. So you shall not steal doesn't mean, man, get as close to stealing as you possibly can on your taxes, but don't cross the line and then you'll be good. No, you shall not steal comes with an implied you shall be radically generous. Like you should, you should be imagining ways not to take from people but to give to people. You shall not commit adultery is not, man, you should flirt and have like emotional things going on, but don't actually have, have any physical affairs. No, no, no. The opposite of that is you should learn in marriage what it means to have a beautiful, wonderful sex life. Because radical beauty as it relates to sex is the opposite of you should not commit adultery. You shall not covet means when you look at your neighbor and you think about them, man, if I could just have the things that they had, their house, their wife, their oxen. I know you're so jealous of your neighbor's oxen. If you could, if you could, if you could, the opposite of that is, is not just stop wanting what they have. The opposite of that is how can I view my neighbor in a totally different way where instead of imagining if I had their life, it would be better, how could I make their life better? How could I imagine myself enriching their life? And on and on and on. All that you shall not come with it implied you shall. And this law, this beautiful law, reaches into the deepest parts of our hearts and rightly understood, it doesn't just go after our actions. It attacks the hearts and the thoughts and the fantasies and the practices and the meditations of God's people. It requires all-encompassingly every inch of you. Jesus summed up the law by saying the law can be summed up in two words, two sentences. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The first four commandments are about your love to God. The second, the second half, the six commandments, are about your love to neighbors. And those two together, Jesus says, loving God and loving people requires all of you, every inch of you. All of your heart's affections towards the Lord, all of your worship and your time and your meditations and your fantasies, all directed towards him and how you treat your neighbors. Loving God and loving people. And we have so shrunk the, the commands of God into a bunch of you shall nots, and we make it about morality instead of about bursting into the world with love for God and man. Our deeds, our words, our thoughts, our, our imaginations, everything, when taken as a whole unit, when taken all read together, we begin to see this curtain being pulled back on God is giving this law, these 10 words, and he's revealing something to us about himself. It shows us what he delights in. He delights in being honest. He delights in integrity. He delights in justice. He delights in love. He delights in fidelity. He delights in generosity. These are all things that God isn't just arbitrarily coming up with random rules to give to his people. He's saying, hey, you wanna know, do you wanna know who I am? 
This is what I do. This is who I am. I am showing you who I am by showing you my law for you. This is revealing to us the heart of God and what he loves. And so the law then becomes this invitation to seeing how every part of our life is challenged and brought into the light by this law. It challenges our economic life, it challenges our artistic life, our family life, it challenges the way we think about sex and money and power and resources, it challenges the way we think about time. The Sabbath command challenges how you like to view your time and what you think about what matters and what you should spend your time doing. Challenges our productivity, challenges our society's credos. It, it, is, it, is, not, it is so much more than just a, a list and rules of do's and don'ts. It, it is showing you the things that God delights in and how that call to be adhered to these 10 laws and everything they imply is a call to beauty, a call to manifest the beauty of who God is to the world. If you back up the narrative in Exodus, we're in Exodus chapter 20, you go back into Genesis, the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 12, God plucks for himself out of all the nations, he plucks for himself out of a person, Abraham and his wife. And they're, they're nomads and they worship the moon, they're from a little town called Ur, and they're, they're, they're lost and God plucks them out and he says, hey, no one in the world knows who I am right now. They've all gone their own way. Every intention of their heart is only evil all the time. Hey Abraham, I'm plucking you out. You don't, you don't even have kids yet. I'm plucking you out because I, I'm gonna be your God and you're gonna be my people, but here's something else. I'm gonna go on display through you. I want the world to know who I am by watching your family. And I'm gonna make your family beautiful. And when the world wants to know what's that Yahweh God of the Hebrews like, they should be able to tell by just looking at who you are. I'm gonna use you, Abraham, and your family as a billboard for my beauty. And so we get to the Ten Commandments and then understood in that line, understood as Abraham's descendants are all at Mount Sinai right now, this family that came from Abraham, this is the family and this is the law that God is saying, if this would be obeyed, if this would be followed, if this would be submitted to, I'm not trying to rob your joy, I'm actually trying to go on display for the world to see. I want you to show the world how beautiful I am and here's how I want you to do it, obey these laws. To use the biblical term, the obedience to this law would introduce the reign of shalom into the world. Peace and flourishing and joy and happiness and life and light. All the things that got that, that word shalom captures biblically speaking. This is the introduction of shalom into the world through the people of God. The people of God, then and now, we're studying ourselves by studying them, are meant to be, called to be, radically different from the world they find themselves in, and that doesn't mean retreating from the world, and that doesn't mean not seeing R-rated movies, and that doesn't mean not liking bourbon a whole lot. That doesn't mean any of those things. What it means to be radically different from the world is you have a totally different way of how you view yourself in the world. Like, what are the world's credos? What are the world's um, beliefs? What are the world's narratives that they believe about themselves in the world? The, the people of God are called to think about themselves in the world radically different than the way the world does. Sex, money, power, influence, family, time, all of those things for the people of God are meant to be used in non-destructive, non-selfish, non-exploitive, non-addictive ways. And the world doesn't know how to do that. And this is the people of God going, let me show you a new way. Let me show you how you don't have to live in the prison of those things. Let me show you how to think about yourself way different in the world. 
Just a few examples of this. Uh, we're not gonna preach through all of them. I, I just took two out of there, two, two commandments that, that will show you, just give you a little window into what God is trying to do by giving the law to his people. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. It's an invitation into being the billboard of God's beauty for the world. So commandment number seven, you shall not commit adultery. This is the first time in world history that any society or any community, any religion had in its constitution, for, better, for lack of a better term, that it would be a sin not only for a woman to commit adultery, but for a man too. Th- this is turning the whole ancient Near East world on its head, that people are going, wait, 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 what are you requiring of husbands also? In a patriarchal society, to bring the man underneath the same law as the woman and say, if either one of you are unfaithful, you're bo- then you're both guilty that the men would be called to the same standard. No one in their world, any watching nation would have gone, wait, what are you restricting for your men? Why in the world would you be doing that? And God's going, because I'm trying to make the world beautiful and that's not beautiful for men or women to do that and to treat their wedding vows that way. So that's what he's saying. I'm, I'm turning all this on its head so that the world will watch and go, I have no idea why you would follow that God or those laws. Another one, how about this? In the you shall not steal or the you shall not covet, the call to radical generosity, the call to, to saying, hey, you need to think about your time and your money and your imaginations differently than the world does. You need to be thinking about how can I just give it away? <laughs> that in Deuteronomy 15, later on in the wilderness wanderings for the people of God, God actually says this to the people. He says, if you would only obey my laws, especially the ones about being radically generous, he actually gives a guarantee. He says, there would be no poor people among you. <laughs> like, following the law of God and following it out to its implications and its, and its rightful ends, it would eradicate poverty in a community, God says. There wouldn't be any poor among you if you would obey my laws. Do you realize how that's calling the people of God to make a community beautiful, not calling the people of God to have a lifeless, joyless existence? It's saying, no, 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 no. This is, when you obey these laws, it's good for the world. Like, it's good for everybody because that's the kind of God I am. What kind of God would not only give these laws, but have a God who would even care about the poor or care about the, the impoverished or the, the beat up and, the, and, the, and the, the marginalized in a society? These people who got these laws just came from a society in Egypt where they would be going, no God in that society is setting up an ecosystem to eradicate poverty. <laughs> what kind of God is this? that actually cares about the poor and says, I'm calling you to be my display of my beauty. Guess what part of my beauty would mean? No poor among you. Nobody that the system has the ability to take advantage of. Nobody that is a victim of injustice. Nobody that's caught in the cycle of poverty and they can't get out of it. If you would obey my laws, it would make your world beautiful. The world operates this way. The world operates in the, in, the, in the view, in the, in the worldview, in the narrative that I view my relationships with other people only to benefit me, especially in this town. Man, you can get a lot of glory and a lot of value if you're associated with cool people. And so we love to go, oh, well, I'm friends with them. I don't just follow them on Instagram. Like, I know them. Like, I'm, I'm, like, I'm kind of like in with this crowd that you're not in with. And so we love to get a little bit of glory and we love to associate, we love to even use our relationships and our time to make my life better. But God comes along and says, no, 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 the heart of God says, you don't view your relationships that way. You don't view your networking that way. You view your relationships and say, not how can you make li- my life better, how can I make your life better? That's what I'm interested in. 
It's totally different than the way the world views even relationships. The law was meant to mold the people of God into a beautiful community in order to display to the world the beauty of God. My people are to be utterly distinct. My people are to be utterly different in order to show how God is utterly beautiful. And now, as a free, redeemed people, Israel, this is what God is saying, I have redeemed you. He's saying that to us too. I I have bought your justification with my own blood. Would you accept the invitation to displaying for the world what kind of God I am? That's what the law was meant to do. Do you see how even in small ways, how obeying and submitting to this law would display God's beauty to the world? And please understand, this is not like um, monarch dictator God saying, you better go do this or else you're in trouble. The law, like we said, shows us what God delights in and who God is. Think about this now. Go through the Ten Commandments. Go through the ways that he's calling his people to think about themselves. Like, I want you to think about using your resources, using your time, using your power, using your imagination for the sake of others. Who did that? Who more than anybody else used their power and used their time and used their resources for the good of others? That's what God just did for them in Egypt. He's saying, look, I'm not making up random things. I'm calling you to be like me. Do you you want me to remind you what I did for you? I used all of my power and all of my glory and all of my time and all of my resources and I leveraged them for your sake. I'm calling you now, people of God, I'm calling you now, redeemed people, to step into reflecting your father that's who I am. Will you, be like, will you resemble the family likeness? I'm the one who never lies to you and always tells you the truth. I'm the one who never steals from you and is always generous with you. I'm the one who's not coveting someone else's relationship. I'm committed to you. I'm the one who, he's going, this Ten Commandments is showing you who I am and what I've done to you. Now would you take that gift of God as a rescued, freed, beautiful community, and would you step in obedience to this law to reflect who your God is? This law reflects the beauty of who God is and what he's done for his people, and he calls his people to walk in the same way. So this new identity that we have as a redeemed people, this new identity that we have as a saved people, this new identity, especially for those of us who are in Christ, We have now a standing with the law where the law isn't justifying me because I've been justified by Jesus. And so keep going with me here for a minute. We're gonna keep pulling on this thread. We're gonna go down this stairwell or up this mountain, whatever fits your uh, favorite illustration. Uh, The obedience to the law, if, if I believe that it's not only stepping into a display of God's beauty to the world, it's actually my guide into walking into my new identity Like, I have been redeemed. I have been made beautiful because of Jesus. I've been given the robe of his righteousness. And now obedience to the law is fleshing that out. It's walking in my new identity. So now think about this. When I break the law of God now as a redeemed, adopted son of God, justified before God, when I break the law of God now, it's not just that I'm sinning, which I am. I'm actually cutting against the grain of my new, true identity. I I have been crucified with Christ. I am no longer a slave to sin. I am an adopted, justified son. So now walking in obedience is walking in, in the grain with the flow of who I really am now. 
And disobedience to the law is cutting against the grain of my old identity. Or it's cutting against the grain of my new identity by stepping into my old one. And so, the laws that are, that are trying to invite me into living out my truest identity, I have to be able to admit that I need someone outside of me to guide me into how to walk into that new identity. Like, I don't know how to create a perfect law for myself. I don't know what is best for me. And so I need help in fleshing out my new identity. I need help in fleshing out this new beauty that I've been redeemed into. That's the very definition of the word we love the most, autonomy. Autos means self, namas means law, autonomy means, literally means self-law. And of all the things that we talked about last week of how the law exposes my sin problem, the law exposes my arrogance problem, I would hope that one of the things in our nakedness that we would be able to admit after the law has exposed our sin problem is that I don't know how to determine what's best for me. I am not a good fit to be a self-law giver. I am not fit to be autos nomos. I am not fit to give a self-law, which our culture rails against that ideal. We rail against any ideology or any spirituality that would come into us and go, hey, here's, here's actually gonna be what's best for you. Here's some restrictions, here's some guides, here's some invitations for what's best for you. Our culture screams against that. You will not take my autonomy from me. I get to determine what's best for me and I reject anything that would put restrictions on me. My autonomy is actually a curse because I'm actually unable, I'm unfit to determine what's best for me, and so autonomy actually isn't liberating, it's restrictive. Autonomy doesn't equal freedom. Autonomy equals slavery. And so th this, this is freedom now. Understand the law now, cutting with your new nature, guiding you into your new nature of freedom and beauty. The law now given to you is actually an invitation with its restrictions into freedom. This is the way you were made. Do you know you weren't made to covet other people's things? You were made to enjoy other people and celebrate them and beautify them. You weren't made to covet. And I think in my autonomy that I get to decide what's best for me. And God's saying, can I put some restrictions on that? And you'll actually find that you're way more free when you're not coveting and jealous of what everybody else has. When you scroll social media and you go, if I just had a little bit different of a life, if I had their life, if I had their wife, if I had their kids, if I had their bank account, my life would be a little bit better. And God's saying, do you realize that's enslaving you? That I'm calling you to a covet-free, a jealous-free life, and that is freedom. Do you know how free you would be if you weren't coveting all the time? Do you know how free you'd be if you were telling the truth all the time? Do you know how free, on and on and on. We could, we could go down the list. This is an invitation into freedom, admitting that my autonomy, I'm not fit to be my own king. I'm not fit to be my own law giver. That obedience to this law isn't restrictive. Obedience to this law is gloriously unshackling. But we believe creeds in our day, we're all guilty of this, Christian or not Christian, we believe creeds like this, to thine own self be true. And we live by it. And then God would come along and say, I'm not, I'm not condemning you for believing that. I'm, I'm trying to get you out of that because that's not freedom. To thine own self be true will shackle you. It won't liberate you. 
In the words of Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor, he says, we reject these ideologies that seem to restrict us because they are potentially circumscribing our perceived freedom to determine our own lives and build our own societies. Like that's what, that's what the American dream is. You get to go decide what's best for you and you get to go live your own best life now and you get to make it. You're a self-made joyful person, go do it. And so anything that would come along and go, that's actually not what's best for you. Your autonomy isn't liberating you. Your autonomy, your self-law is not what's best for you. You need new restrictions. You need a new guide. You don't even know how to walk into the freedom that I've purchased for you. Christianity, as James K. Smith says, says this. Christianity sees a very different understanding of the ultimate good. Humanity and all of creation flourish when they are rightly ordered by a law that is not of their own choosing, but is ordered by the God that made them. So we have believed this credo, to thine own self be true, and let no one hold you back from what you think is best for you. And Christianity understands that's actually not what's best for the world. That's, that's not what's good for, for, the, for the city that we live in. That's not gonna make the city beautiful. What's gonna make the city beautiful is the law of God displacing our own desire for autonomy, that you and I need to be radically generous, but on my own, I'm not so sure about that. This is so tough for us to digest and ingest that the biblical vision of human freedom comes from restricting ourselves and submitting ourselves to the law of God. And that actually is where you and I will be most free, is in submission and dependence and obedience to a law outside of ourself. Think about this now, that if God is good, if, we'll wager it for a minute, if God's good and if God made you, is it possible that he knows what's best for you? Is it possible that his law would actually be really, really good for you and really, really helpful in leading you to freedom? That he's, he's a good God and he's not like waiting around the corner to go, man, I knew if you obeyed my law, you'd run out of joy. He's actually saying, no, I made your soul. I made your, your image-bearing self. I'm good. Look at what I've done for you. Do you think I would save you just to restrict your joy? What do you think about this God? who's done everything to redeem you, who's used his own resources to buy you back. You think that his law is gonna be restrictive for you? You think his law is gonna be bad for your joy levels? He's saying, look at who I am. And this law that I'm giving you is meant for your good. And is it possible that he knows what's better for you than you do? The law wasn't meant to restrict us, it was meant to liberate us. So. You want to walk in the freedom you were made and now saved for? Submit to the law of God. Do you want to walk in the beauty that you were made and saved for? Submit to the law of God. Do you want to rest in the way you were made and saved for? Submit to the law of God. Do you want to show the world how good the God of the Bible is? Submit to the law of God. This is how the psalmist can cry out in the Psalms multiple times. Once in Psalm 119, the psalmist says, oh, how I love and delight in your law. And, and there's a little bit of you that wanna go, hey, David, um, do you, are you sure about that? Seems kind of boring and kind of condemning. And then in Psalm chapter one, it says, the wise person delights in God's law day and night. And you're going, day and night, ooh, that sounds boring. And you go, I don't know if I could do that all day and all night. I'm not sure that that's really gonna be so, so great for me. And the, the psalmist is saying, if God's redeemed you, this law is your delight. This now is what will bring you the most joy. 
Happens in the New Testament too, all over, but very particularly in the book of 1 John, the apostle John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, is writing to the church in Asia, and he says this. He says, loving God looks like obeying his commands. And then he says this, and his commands are not burdensome. Wait, 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 are we, are we reading the same law, John? Like, did you hear what Rachel read this morning? All the things that you go, oh gosh, oh gosh, I'm not, I'm not doing that, I'm not. That there's a way to approach the law that you and I can begin, if we understand it rightly, that it actually becomes our delight, it becomes our freedom, and the laws aren't burdensome. They're, they're invitations. They're, they're like, come on, that's what you were made for. You weren't made to lust, you weren't. You were made to be faithful. And that's, that's way more liberating than a, than a life full of lust. It is, it's better, it's better for you, I care about you. It's not burdensome, it's delightful. But we can only delight in the law once it ceases to be my justifier. We can only see the law as beautiful after I've tasted the beauty and the love of God coming to redeem me. Only then can I see the law not as a crushing, condemning weight, but as an invitation to step with the grain of how I was made to live, and then I walk into the freedom and beauty that is now mine. This law isn't gonna give me an identity. I have an identity, and now this law is my guide for how to walk in that new identity. The commandments of God are not burdensome once they've lost their power to justify or condemn me. The law of God is an invitation to delight in the things that God delights in, knowing that that is what I was made to do. So holding both uses of the law, keeping them together for us is critical. We must never separate these, these understandings of the law. They're two sides of the same coin. The first use of the law that we talked about last week is that it crushes me, it exposes me, it condemns me, and it makes me fly to Jesus who kept the whole law for me. That's the first use. And then the second use is this, is that after that, after Jesus becomes my justifier and God becomes my father, now the law that they give me becomes my guide to the beauty and freedom that Jesus purchased for me. And both of those things must be held together. In fact, the Bible would say that if you try to separate them, if you try to separate the two uses of the law, you'll be confused about both uses. That if all you want to do is talk about how the law crushes you and then leads you to Jesus to justify you, that's true. But you will never know what it means to walk in that new freedom. But if all you do is use the law to be your guide for morality and you forget that Jesus kept the law for you, you will become an obnoxious legalist. And so it saves us, the gospel, both of these together saves us from antinomianism, meaning the law doesn't matter, and it saves us from legalism, which is the law is everything. The law is neither. The law is not my identity giver, Jesus is. The law is now my guide into walking in the beauty that he saved me for. These two uses, this, this tension, this relationship between both uses of the law is thoroughly clear in 2 Peter chapter one. Peter, another apostle, he's writing to the church and he's urging them, he's commanding them in the opening chapter, he, he uses this language where he's, he's, he's calling them, he's beckoning them to walk in the obedience that, that will guide them into the freedom and beauty that we've been talking about this morning. And he has this run-on sentence in Greek, I'm not gonna read it in Greek, but he has this run-on sentence in Greek where he goes through like nine different virtues and it's essentially the Ten Commandments. And he says to them, it's the fruits of the Spirit, it's, it's the way that God has called his people to live and he says, he says, add to your faith. He says, make every effort. Make every effort to add to your faith, 
goodness. And make every effort to add to your goodness, self-control. And make every effort to add to your self-control, perseverance. And on and on and on. And he lists all these wonderful, beautiful things. He's saying, make every effort to add these things to your life. And you can kind of get to the end. You can kind of go, I'm, I'm probably failing at that test too. I don't know that I have a whole lot of goodness and self-control going on. So what am I supposed to do? And then Peter says this, if you're not adding those virtues to your life, that domino of virtues, then Peter says he knows something about you and me. He says, add to your, 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 all the way down. Then he says, and if you don't add those things, I know something about you. Here's what he knows. Then you've forgotten how much Jesus has cleaned you. That the thing that holds us back from stepping into the beauty of these pursuits of obeying and submitting to the law, the thing that would hold us back from that is if you've forgotten the first use of the law. <laughs> but the more I understand the first use of the law, which drives me to Jesus, the more I go, if my God is this good to send a justifier on my behalf, I want to obey his law. I want to step into the beauty that he's purchased for me. Peter says the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that Jesus kept the law perfectly for you, on your behalf, for your freedom. Diving into that is the fuel for your obedience. That if you don't know how to obey the Lord, if you don't walk into adding these virtues, you've forgotten you've been forgiven and redeemed. So the story goes that um, Abraham Lincoln went down to the town square and uh, purchased for himself a slave girl. And after he purchased her, he immediately undid her shackles. And he takes them off and he says, you're free. And she says, what do you, what do you mean? Can, can I say anything I wanna say right now? Because I've got some things to say to you. And he said, yeah, you're free. And she said, can, can I do anything I wanna do right now? And he said, yeah, I, I bought you and I set you free, you're free. And she said, can I go anywhere I wanna go? And he said, yes, you're free. And so after a moment of taking in her new freedom, she looks at him and says, then I think I'll go with you. I think that if you're the kind of guy who would work and labor and purchase me and, and set me free, I think you probably are gonna treat me pretty good. I think I wanna be with you. I think that you probably have my best interest at heart. I think you probably know what's best for me. That's exactly what the Bible is saying in relationship to the law. That Jesus is saying, you're really free because of what Christ has done for you. You can go anywhere you wanna go, you can say anything you wanna say, you can do anything you wanna do, and it will not change how free and justified you are because no one is justified by works of the law. You're justified by faith in Christ. You are really that free. But then the Bible would say, hey, in your new freedom, not as a slave, but as a son and a daughter, as someone who has been set free, do you know where you will taste and live and experience the deepest realities of your new freedom? If you go with Jesus. If, if you learn his, his, his gentleness. If you keep coming back to the fact that he was not only the perfect law keeper for you, he has treated you like a perfect law actor. He has loved you perfectly and redeemed you wholly and he serves you entirely and he's generous with you and he doesn't hoard and he doesn't cheat on you and he's always been faithful to you. He doesn't put anything else ahead of you. When you and I learn, learn Jesus, come from me, take from me and learn my ways, then my burden is easy and my yoke is light. If you go with Jesus, when we go with Jesus, 
not only will we be a display of him to the world that's watching, we will understand and taste and experience our freedom. Let's pray. Jesus, we want to go with you, but the law has been our taskmaster for so long that we don't, we're not sure we can trust you. And so melt us, we pray, first uh, by the goodness of your gospel to us, and then in our new liberty because of what you've done, make us um, willing, listening, obedient kids, we pray. Guide us now, Holy Spirit. Lead us into the Sabbath rest that you not only command, but lead us into by your Son. In Jesus' name, amen.